You could say that State Representative Dan Schall is especially busy during this 2021 legislative session. Not only is the Jefferson County Republican in charge of the Elections Committee, but he's also heading up a House committee dealing with congressional redistricting. So on the latest episode of Politically Speaking, Shaw joins us to talk about the ins and outs of election administration policy and the timetable for lawmakers to vote on a congressional map. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. We have to talk about things that matter to people. I've tried to bring that same aggressive iconoclast style with me to uh, the United States Senate. I think my district is a model for the state. We put Missourians first. You just kind of have to find the common ground with people. I believe that this district deserves someone who represents their values. After I came back to St. Louis, I started thinking that I could have a bigger role on the change that I wanted to make. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me today, he is a Republican from Jefferson County and the chairman of two committees dealing with election and congressional redistricting that I am extremely, extremely interested in. Our our guest today is... Dan Shaw from Jefferson County. Glad to be with you, Jason. Thank you so much for returning to the show. We have a lot to talk about right now, so I'm going to get right down to it. Uh, There's a whole bunch of election administrative issues that have passed through the House over the last few weeks, including one that is sponsored by Representative Don Roan, a Republican from Southeast Missouri. Now, it went through your committee, and it does a number of things that I think we're going to talk about separately. Um, What are some of the big highlights from this legislative package that has made it through the House and is now awaiting action in the Senate? Uh, you're absolutely right. There's a there's a lot in the bill. Uh, the main two pieces that, that I specifically look at is uh, no excuse absentee uh, uh, ballots and then also uh, the photo ID portion of it. Those two are the anchors to this bill and uh, everything else falls in place to support fair, transparent and trustworthy elections. Let's talk about the photo ID Uh, measure first. For our listeners, in 2016, Missouri voters amended the Missouri Constitution to allow a government-issue photo ID requirement to vote. And there was legislation that was passed around the same time that was put on the ballot that, that explained the parameters behind this requirement. There was a Missouri Supreme Court case that many felt rendered that statutory change pretty much useless. Explain what you're doing in this legislation to make that requirement operable again. Well, as you said, the people passed the constitutional change uh, overwhelmingly, and I think it was 70 percent or higher in Jefferson County and throughout the state. It it passed overwhelmingly. Uh, And what we've done is we're trying to work with the Supreme Court to to make sure that they feel it's constitutional, everything, what what we've done. They, they uh, kicked it out saying that it was uh, unconstitutional because of the affidavit part. And, and that gets into specifics. What we've done is we've taken that part out and reworked the bill to meet the needs of the Supreme Court, but still uphold the, the intent of the people. And that's what we have in House Bill 738. It was also passed on several other bills, uh, all of which are in the Senate now. Uh, so what we've tried to do is work within the parameters that the Supreme Court has outlined. They said one portion was 
unconstitutional. We fixed that. Uh, and now we've sent it back to the Senate uh, with that fix. And we hope they hold up to it. And uh, we can pass House Bill 738 or any of the other companion bills that have that in it as well. And I think this is an important point um, for many detractors of the photo ID idea. Is it still in this proposal that if you don't have documents to get a government-issued photo ID, namely a birth certificate, that the state will pay for those documents to be procured? Yeah, that that has always been in, in, in the statute, and it's remained in the statute. The uh, Secretary of State has uh, continually helped people get those ever since 2016. And I don't have the numbers in front of me, but they there I want to say over a thousand people a year have been able to obtain the credentials that they need to, to have that uh, state issued ID. And it's become commonplace that you need state ID or some type of photo ID to to do almost anything now. Uh, people requiring COVID shots or requiring photo ID. So it, it makes sense to me and many in the House that, that this we need to fix this to make sure the Supreme Court agrees and uh, move on with the will of people. I'm sure that you're well aware that whenever a photo ID requirement is proposed, Democrats loudly condemn it. And I think that it's gotten more attention than usual um, because there has been kind of a national movement against this type of idea. And they say that it's discriminatory against poor people, the elderly minorities. What do you say when you hear that type of argument? Uh, you know, I, I disagree with them. I don't think it's uh, disenfranchising anyone. I think it's uh, making secure elections, making sure that everybody's vote counts equally. And we've made sure that the, there's mechanisms in place. That even if you don't have an ID and you show up that day to vote, you're still going to be able to vote. It'll be a provisional ballot. And after your, after your identity is proven, it'll be counted as a regular ballot. Uh, I, I think it's um, unworthy to, to call this disenfranchisement. This is protecting our elections. Uh, we have good election laws in Missouri. What we saw throughout this last 12 months is other issues come up in other states. And we want to continue to make sure people, when they go to the polls and, and ele to elect people in the state of Missouri, that they feel as though their vote counts, it's trustworthy and it's safe and, and it's effective. So I, I disagree with that, uh, but it's something you're absolutely right. Uh, we're gonna hear that uh, every time we bring this up, we're gonna hear that. And um, I think uh, the people in the state of Missouri spoke pretty clear uh, in 2016 that they wanted this. Let's move on to the three week period where anybody would be able to go to a county clerk's office or an election authority building and vote absentee without an excuse if they show their their photo ID. Um, my my question is, I, why not just make it no excuse for 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 all absentee balloting, especially since uh, county clerks and election officials across the political spectrum have said the excuse system in Missouri does not work. There's no way for people to know, and by people I mean election officials, to know if the excuse that's put down is is real. And in, in reality, it, it could be scaring people not to vote absentee, thinking that they're committing a crime when they're not going to be in trouble for saying they're going to be out of town when they're really not. Like, why do only three weeks and just 
not make it no excuse for for everything. Well, you know, and that has been long the argument. One was, do we have the is the absentee process working for Missouri? That that's been a big issue. Is it working? And I think the Republicans, myself included, feel as though election day is the pinnacle of our elections, and you should vote that day. If you can't vote that day, we, we do have this, the absentee process. Uh, and, and I think it's fair now, uh, realizing that they have concerns, the other side, and there's some concerns. We've decided uh, on this bill, part of the compromises that uh, we'll go to three weeks, no excuse, uh, and it'll have uh, the photo ID in it. So it's kind of a, uh, they don't like the photo ID, I, uh, the Republican Party doesn't necessarily like the no excuse, uh, open, uh, no excuse for six weeks would be the same as early voting. Uh, and I think uh, when, when you're that far out six weeks, there's lots of things that can happen in the last six weeks before the election that can change one's um, decision on who they're going to vote for. And I think you could have seen that uh, some of the things in this last election, there was a lot of news that was coming out the last few weeks and I, I would rather uh, the first three weeks of absentee be for people that have a, a true excuse or are on the permanently disabled permanent absentee list that, that will be able to vote that entire six weeks on their normal ballot that they would normally get sent to them. So uh, the, we think that the three weeks is, is fair. Uh, I had many members of the committee wanting to take it to one week of no excuse. Uh, I thought it was fair to stick at three uh, and we'll see how it works. And, and there's an opportunity that it could be adjusted in the future. And I thought this was a good compromise between the uh, Republicans and Democrats on our committee and those who had uh, power to, to help craft this bill behind the scenes. It was something we came to compromise on. It's something that I think was very good. Uh, do I like it completely, Jason? No. Uh, but I also feel very strongly about photo ID. So it's a compromise. And because of that, I, I think this is a good bill. So I had the chance to talk with Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft on April 6th. We talked about a whole bunch of topics that are that you know, the material from it is going to be strewn over a couple of weeks in various stories. This is what he had to say about why he preferred to have a three-week window for in-person, no-excuse absentee voting as opposed to getting rid of the excuse system altogether? Well, I would suggest that I think we're better off when people vote on Election Day in person. Um, obviously, moving from um, we're trying to incentivize people to vote in person, even with this legislation, um, I'm not a fan of early voting. Um, I understand that there are certain circumstances. I think the number one that people talk about is if you're serving Uncle Sam and he sent you off to some armpit of the world, we need to make sure that you don't lose your right to vote. Um, that's important. Um, but, you know, early voting, it, it helps incumbents. Um, it doesn't give us a clear a picture of what the people want because circumstances change as people are voting. Um, if you have ballots that are not done in person, those are ballots that then have to be messed with, that have to be uh, worked with by someone other than the voter, which always brings in concerns about whether or not changes will be made intentionally or not, or something gets dropped or the post office doesn't deliver it on time. 
so I'm a big believer in that in person. I'm a big believer in limiting the number of people that vote early as long as we make sure that people have a great opportunity to vote under the rules. So I think that the reason why there was a expanded absentee ballot access in 2020 is pretty obvious. The COVID-19 pandemic was raging. Um, and it's very possible by 2022 that the pandemic is at a much, much, much lower level than it is even it is even now. Um, but I, I guess my question is, uh, does what you're saying and what Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft saying, take away take away Democrats from the legislature. Is that going against what like county clerks and election officials want? Because my understanding, as I mentioned in the first question, is they would rather just go to no excuse absentee and just be done with that system altogether. Like, what have you heard on that front? Well, the, the clerks certainly have made it made it clear that they would prefer to go to no excuse for the entire six weeks. Uh but they're, you know, I think they're okay with this three weeks, the compromise. They realize that if, if this system works at three weeks, that they'll come back and ask for the other three weeks. And, and I think that's a reasonable ask on their behalf. But I think uh, at first, I think this is a good compromise. I agree with what Secretary Ashcroft said in that clip. Uh, and, you know, my son currently serves in the military. I want to make sure he has every opportunity to, to cast his ballot. Uh, and, and this will allow it. There's lots of other things in this bill, but those are the two main pieces, as we said, the photo ID and this uh, no excuse absentee for three weeks. I want to play another clip from Secretary Ashcroft talking about getting rid of the presidential primary, which is kind of an issue that's in flux. There, there have been some pieces of legislation that deal with elections where that's been in it and others that have not. This is what Secretary Ashcroft had to say about that proposition. I'm not so much that I hate the presidential preference primary. I love the caucus or I hate the caucus and I love the primary. I hate doing both. Um, I think we ought to do one or the other. And if we're going to hold uh, the presidential primary, don't hold the caucus and actually allocate the delegates based and determine and allocate the delegates based on the primary so that when people vote, it means something. Um, but right now, it, it, it only means something as long as the party wants to say it means something. So on its face, it may seem like a jarring proposition to get rid of, of the presidential primary where a lot of people come out and they vote in it every four years. But my understanding is the the clerks either want to get rid of it or they want to move it to the same day as the municipal election cycle because it costs a lot of money to do this. I've, I've heard it costs like $6 million or so. What's the prognosis for that issue, which I think if it's actually accomplished and the presidential primary is gotten, gotten rid of, I think that's going to affect a lot of people in, in a little less than four years. Right. The, the presidential primary piece doing away with it, the elimination of it was originally in 738, House Bill 738. It was taken out on the floor. Uh, I think uh, I'm kind of indifferent on, on that, but we've heard so much from the people on this, on both sides of it. Uh, I'm of the opinion now I'd like the, the bill that 738 to remain silent and 
and let us review the presidential preference primary specifically it's as its own issue and have a have some hearings and some input on just that it seems like a very simple thing to do uh but there's a lot of um politics involved with it so i imagine that will be uh, remain silent on legislation this year we talked about it a little bit i think it garners a lot more uh conversation and certainly discussion this summer and in the fall and I would look forward to uh, talking more about it next year. Uh, we're, we're still within the window that, that if we wanted to do something for the next presidential primary, we certainly have time. We're not against the time restraint on that, certainly. So long and short, uh, I think we'll remain silent on it this year and we'll look at it more in depth uh, in 2022. So another issue that is not part of the legislation we were just talking about, but it has been percolating around the legislative process is changing the initiative petition process. So that's either increasing the amount of signatures required to get something on the ballot or, or requiring, say, like a supermajority vote, like 66.7% to pass a constitutional amendment. And this comes along when this, this comes at a time when there's been this really fierce debate in the House about the whole issue of Medicaid expansion and whether the constitutional amendment that passed last year like requires funding for it, which we talked about on a previous show with Representative Cody Smith. It's pretty obvious that the the question of initiative petitions has sparked a lot of debate this session. This, for example, is a clip from House Minority Leader Crystal Quaid decrying the entire question about uh, Medicaid expansion funding. This fight is so unnecessary and little more than a destructive temper tantrum by petulant children who didn't get their way. Missouri voters support expansion. Every medical organization and patient advocacy group in the state supports expansion. Even the Missouri Chamber of Commerce, as Republican of, as an organization as there is in our state, supports expansion. What House Republicans are doing is fiscally irresponsible, morally reprehensible, and completely indefensible. Basically, the, beyond just the fact that they, the Democrats want to expand Medicaid, they feel that not following through on this is, quote unquote, going against the will of the people. As somebody who has heard that argument many times, I'd like you to respond to that. And what do you make of the it, 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 a lot of the legislation we talked about that would change the initiative petition process? Yeah, two things. The Medicaid expansion, uh, you know, the. The people voted to, to approve it, and we understand that, but they didn't tell us how to fund it. And if, and systematically, I'm sure uh, Budget Chair Cody Smith on your previous show explained that where are we going to take the money from? So that, that's a question. It's two separate issues. The, the IP reform that, that is before the, uh, before, well, now before the Senate, would, would make sure that the IP anytime you do an initiative petition to change the constitution of the state of Missouri, which has been changed so many times, uh, much more than the federal constitution. If, if you're gonna change it through initiative petition reform, uh, it's gonna be held to a higher standard. Currently, uh, you need uh, six of the eight congressional districts to gather signatures of 8%. That's currently what is required. What we propose is that you go to all of the eight so that every congressional district has input on a constitutional amendment for the constitution of the state of Missouri, and that it goes from 8% to 10%. Uh, we think those are very reasonable numbers. 
currently one could go basically down the I-70 corridor and get all the signatures you need for an IP reform to change the Missouri state constitution. And you wouldn't even have to touch uh, Congressman Smith or Congressman Graves district. And if you look at those two districts represent 60% of the geographical area of the state. And if you're gonna exclude those two, I don't think you should be changing the constitution of the state of Missouri. So we went to eight of eight congressional districts and we raised it to 10%. Several wanted 12%, we decided 10% was a fair number. And then what we also did was when it goes to the ballot, it will require two thirds of the people to change the constitution, to add to or delete from the constitution. And I think that's a fair number. We're talking about the constitution of the state of Missouri. This isn't about a statutorial change. This is the constitution of the state of Missouri. And I think we have to hold it to a higher standard. It needs to be to a higher standard than the dog catcher election this year. We'll be right back after this quick break with Representative Dan Shaw. And we're back on Politically Speaking with State Representative Dan Shaw. He is a Republican from Jefferson County. All right. The time has come to talk about congressional redistricting, uh, one of my favorite topics in the entire world. Um, What's unusual about this process is twofold. This is the first time in modern Missouri history where Democrats have not held the governorship or a branch of the legislature during a redistricting cycle. I'd have to think back to maybe the 1920s when that was true. Like it has not happened in a very, very long time. And the other unusual thing is because the census data is probably not going to be delivered to Missouri until September 30th. And that's kind of the census data required to do redistricting. At this point, it's looking like December is going to be when the legislature is going to come back to do congressional redistricting. So you're the head of the House committee dealing with this process. Um, Number one, how are Republicans approaching this issue? And number two, when do you think that debate will actually happen on a congressional map? Well, uh, on the congressional map, we certainly can't start drawing lines or anything until we have the data. And you're absolutely right. The indication is we will have usable data September 30th. Uh, and that is when it hits uh, President Biden's desk. We're at the mercy of, of the Census Bureau on that. But we haven't sat around and, and done nothing. What, what we're currently doing to try to expedite this process, we're currently in the process of hearing congressional uh, hearings on each congressional district. Uh, we currently have, we've had the 8th, the 7th, and the 6th. Next Tuesday, we'll have the 5th district come in and tell us about the district. The, the historical features of it, what is good, what is bad, and what have you. So uh, we're, we're working as best we can without the data so that when we have the data, we'll be able to do it. What is our goal? Uh, I, I think really until we hear all the hearings and, and get uh, a firm understanding of what the people of the state of Missouri want, uh, I've tried to keep an open mind. I've worked with uh, the ranking member, uh, Representative um, Barnes from Kansas City, uh, he's been involved with all the decisions we've made before, so far. And what, what's going to be the challenge, and Representative Barnes and I both discussed this, is that we won't have a, there'll be, this will be as pure uh, map, I think, process, because there will be no budget to play with because we'll be in special session. There'll be nothing to negotiate with budget-wise or with uh, legislation-wise. This will be in its own vacuum, and it's going to be 
quite a challenge, but I think uh, Representative Kelly is the vice chair and myself and Representative Barnes is the ranking member. Look forward to this challenge and presenting a map that makes sense for the state of Missouri. Yeah, and I want to just kind of touch on the point you just made, because this is going to be happening in special session, probably in December. That's when Senator Schatz predicted it, but maybe it'll be in November. I don't know. That's up to the governor to decide. Because there's nothing else that's going to be on the agenda, Democrats cannot necessarily leverage something else to get a better map. Now, it's certainly possible that the end result may be kind of a best case scenario for them and they don't end up filibustering. But that would have been their only leverage to do anything had this happened in regular session. So that changes the dynamics of what the map will be, in my opinion, to where Republicans are going to basically be the decision makers on this, even if there's input among Democrats. Is that a fair observation or am I looking at this incorrectly? Well, I think, you know, certainly uh, our committee could just shove whatever we wanted through. But I think if you've looked at what I the body work I've done as election chair the last three years and now as chairman of, of uh, redistricting for the congressionals is I've always tried to incorporate and come up with what's best for Missouri. And we always start our meeting with fair, transparent, trustworthy elections. And I believe our committees, both committees are committed to that. And, you know, and the thing we have to remember also is whatever we pass will probably be challenged in court. So is it, you know, if we get too greedy, if we, if we draw something that, that appears to be gerrymandered, uh, that's a problem. And we're, I, my goal is to make sure that we put something that, that uh, we can both live with, uh, both parties, and that it's fair for Missouri and that the courts would uphold. That's our goal. And uh, we'll see how, how this fall goes. It's going to be very intense, and, and there's going to be a lot, of, uh, a lot of pressure on us to get done because filing is, is in February. And uh, not only for us, but also for the other committee that the governor puts together for the House and Senate districts, there's a lot of pressure on them as well. From what I've heard from a number of Republicans in Missouri, I think that there are there is one goal that they clearly want, and that is to make the second district more Republican. How that happens is kind of an open question. Do you add all of Jeffco or part more of Jeffco? Do you all add all of St. Charles? Do you put all of St. Charles in the third? Like there's a hundred thousand different possibilities. I don't want you to be hypothetical there. The other thing that I've heard on what's uh, lovingly known as election Twitter is that the Republicans want to take Emanuel Cleaver's 5th district and turn it into a Republican district somehow. Now, I I have been very skeptical that that's actually going to happen because doing that could make uh, uh, Congressman Sam Graves' district and Congresswoman Vicki Hartzler's district more Democratic. And then in a wave Democratic year, when you think you have a 7-1 map, you actually have a 5-4 map. have have, it, have people talked about those cut types of things to you, or are these completely wacky scenarios that are just being told to you for the first time? No, I think uh, that there's lots of conversation. And uh, for me to tell you, no one's talked to me about all these different scenarios. I think I've heard almost every possible scenario, though, is uh, I've reminded the committee and members, uh, even when we're not in committee, make sure you keep an open mind. Uh, be careful what you ask for. Also, Senator Talent taught me this once. He said, be careful what you ask for because you might just get it. 
and and that would be the scenario you're talking about. The if you go for broke uh, and try to really get something, you, you be careful because the voters may it may come back to haunt you. So, uh, not only do we have to look at what's best for the state of Missouri for the 2022 election, we also have to worry about what's best for the state of Missouri in 2028, 2030, 2032, and, and beyond. So. This isn't just a uh, let's fix it for today. This is a 10-year process uh, that we have to put in place. And, it, and it, the heaviness of this has, uh, has really hit everyone on the committee. We understand the significance of this issue. Now, before I let you go, I would be remiss if I did not talk about state legislative redistricting. Uh, this is something that I'm sure you're going to be personally paying attention to because you were termed out of the legislature and you have announced that you're going to be running for the soon-to-be-vacant 22nd District Senate seat in Jefferson County. But the issue that you and a lot of other potential legislative candidates have is because of the way the timeline is for Amendment 3, which set up a, a which basically repealed the clean Missouri system and replaced it with a system where committees get first crack at the maps, and then if the committee's deadlock, it goes to appellate judges. And then even after that, it could go to court and change be changed further. Um, it's very possible that the state legislative maps may not be set in stone until the end of first quarter 2022, and the filing period may have to be shifted most likely to April. Uh, I know this is kind of speculative, but because the state legislative committees have almost always deadlocked, um, this is not a this is not an out of the question possibility that the maps may not be done in uh, in time. What have you heard about moving the filing date? And do you think that that's something that can be done um, either later this year in a special session or maybe early next year when it's going to be clear that the maps are not going to be completed? Well, certainly we've had discussions on the timeline for both the congressional redistricting and the state redistricting. And as chairman of elections, that is a concern of ours. We have talked about it uh, in some smaller meetings, uh, just side conversations. And we are looking at the timelines to see uh, if and when we have to make that decision about that. Right now, it is my hope, and I, I think the hope of, of everyone that we don't have to change filing. Uh, because filing was put there for a reason when it was to allow candidates opportunity to uh, to, to really position themselves best for the primary. And, and when you start reducing that timeline, I think it, it detracts from the process. So we're going to do everything in our power uh, to try to get as much work done so that we can be ready for when the census data comes so that we can have the process play out in a fair manner uh, and, and get a good result. And then if at some time this fall, uh, we decide that those timelines aren't uh, achievable, uh, we'll take the appropriate action. But uh, to, to say that the, the state isn't aware of that would, would be false. We are completely aware. We know that's out there. Uh, but right now, I, I would not be in favor of changing something right now because we might have to change it again. And we want to provide some security and some certainty uh, when that's going to be when we announce that. 
Well, hopefully you're aware of this because I wrote a pretty lengthy <laughs> article about it. Uh, uh, but I'm not sure that everybody uh, in Missouri uh, reads St. Louis Public Radio's coverage, and I'm not offended by that. On that note, uh, Representative, thank you so much for joining us today. I will definitely be checking back with you often, especially once congressional redistricting kicks into high gear. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. And I know I don't think you're on Twitter, but how could people learn more about the redistricting committee process? Because I'm sure there are going to be people that are going to want to follow that over the next few months. Well, every uh, Tuesday and Thursdays, we currently have uh, committee meetings dealing with each of the congressional districts. I am I do have a Twitter account, but I'll be honest with you, I don't use it very often. I just really use it to, to look at people. The main thing is, uh, Jason, I would suggest people follow you and, and other news sources that they trust. Uh, you do a good job of reporting on this and certainly call our office. Talk to us. Uh, talk to your state rep, your state senators. Uh, everything we do, all the testimony that, that is before the committee is available on the state website underneath our special committee on redistricting uh, and reach out to your representatives or your senators. Uh, that, that's what we're there for is to, to answer your questions. So I would look forward to people calling our office or emailing or what have you in uh we'll get them the information or at least provide what comments we can. And uh, we have really, what I want to do is hear what the people have to say. Be engaged. This is the most important, this is one of the most important things that will happen over the next 10 years. And I'm not just saying that to suck up to our guest. Redistricting does matter for a whole host of reasons that we'll be talking about in excruciating detail over the next year. Thank you very much. And until next time, so long. 